Go ahead and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 3. It's going to be our verses for today. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to be beginning in verse 1 and then coming all the way down to verse 11, starting verse 1 all the way down to verse 11 of Matthew chapter 3. And as you're turning there, just let me give a little background of where we've been. We started in Matthew 1, and Adam was preaching about the genealogy. And it begins in Abraham, as he's called out of the land of Ur. And Abraham has Isaac. Isaac, he has Jacob. Jacob, he has Judah and his brothers. And then with Tamar, he has Perez and Zerah. And it goes all the way down till you have Jesse. And Jesse has David, who we know as king. And David is this central figure in this genealogy. He's, he, it comes in, you kind of have this, this hinge point, and it's, it's about David. The one who was to come, this king, his point is to someone greater. And we come out of the genealogy, and we see God's faithfulness to His people throughout the time in that geneal- genealogy. And then in verse 18 through 25 of chapter 1, we have the birth of Christ. And Joseph is told to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. So we, we can look to Christ as our righteousness. We don't have to look to ourselves. We don't have to look to our own works. But we can look to Christ who is going to be the one to save us from our sins. And then after that, so Christ is born. And then you have the Magi coming from the far east, and already you see the nations beginning to come to worship the true King, to worship Christ. However, there was another king who was there, Herod. So you have Joseph. He has to flee. Herod is slaughtering the babies. Joseph has to flee. And just as you see in the Old Testament, you have a Joseph bringing Israel to Egypt. So here you have a Joseph bringing the true Israel, Christ, the Messiah, down to Egypt. And this parallel narrative continues. Just as in the Old Testament, God's people were redeemed, pulled out of Egypt. So you have Joseph and Mary and the true Israel coming out of Egypt. And the people of God are crossing the Jordan and coming into the Promised Land. And here we are, on the cusp. We're at the Jordan again. Christ is now an adult. And before this this climactic moment begins, you have John the Baptist heralding the One who is to come. Heralding this Kingdom of Heaven that is to come. Telling them to do what they should always be doing. And we begin to ask ourselves, what should we be doing in light of this coming kingdom of heaven? With that in mind, let's turn to our verses. Matthew chapter 3, starting at 1 and coming all the way down to verse, verse 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel hair 
and had a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, and they were confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of, to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The axe, even now, is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is greater than me, and he will baptize, whose handles I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, as a body, we we come to You. We, We don't come to hear the words from the lips of men. God, we come to see You and to encounter You, Father. We don't come to hear sermons, God, but we come to be taught by Your Word. And Father, that can only happen when You show up and when Your Spirit moves. So God, could You do that at this time? Could You convict us of our sins in a fresh way? Could we see Your glory and Your holiness and such purity that we would delight in You and be confronted with our sin, God? Could You do that marvelous work? Even now. Amen. So you, you probably picked it up. Uh, the main idea, kind of where we're going after this sermon is, main idea, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then you have verses 1-6, through six, and you have this re- redemption from the exile, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah and how that fits into to John the Baptist and this Messiah who is to come. And then in verses 7-10, through 10, you have the unbelief of the religious. You see the, the, the common people and how they respond. What are they doing? They're coming out to John the Baptist. But then you also have the unbelief of the religious, the religious elites at that time. And then finally in verses 11-12, through 12, you have the gathering and the burning of the harvest. The gathering and the burning of the harvest. So main idea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verses 1-6, through six, you have the redemption from exile. Verses 7-10, through 10, you have the unbelief of the religious people and how they are not repenting. And then we see in verses 11 and 12 why you should repent, knowing the kingdom is at hand. Because there is going to be a gathering and also a burning when Christ comes and comes again. So point number one, the, re- the redemption from exile. Let's go back to the text. We're going to be doing verses 1 through, one through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel hair and had a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. 
and Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were coming out to him. And they were being baptized by him, the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now the story of God's people throughout the Old Testament, as, as the generations go by, I, I fear that we understand it less and that we understand it less and less. And, and that's unfortunate because in the Old Testament, if you want to, you have the foundation or if you want to see like the picture of a tree, in the Old Testament you have the roots and the trunk and the branches. In the New Testament we have this beautiful fruit that's, that's low and it's accessible and it's easy to, to take and digest. But without understanding the Old Testament, we're we're depriving ourselves as Christians as to this full narrative of God. This full story of God redeeming His people. And then we realize, this is not so much about us, but this is about God and His story. Not about me and where I'm at. And about God meeting me. No, no, no. We find ourselves then placing ourselves within the narrative of what God is doing throughout, throughout uh, Genesis all the way to Revelation. So when we see these, these quotes in Matthew, as we're going to see a myriad of them throughout as we finish up the book, we always want to be asking ourselves, one, what is the context that was happening? So what is we, we're going to look at? What was the context in Isaiah that was going on? Once we know the context, all signs point to Christ. How is this fulfilled? How is this fulfilled in Christ? So you have John the Baptist here, and he's a seemingly fanatic gentleman. His message is drastically different than that of the religious elites. He is uh, telling them to repent. He's not telling them to go to the temple. No, he's just calling them to repent. For there is one who is coming, who is greater than temple. He is the true temple of God. So he has this message that's drastically different than the religious elites. His clothing defies any, any cultural norm of wearing camel's hair and then a leather belt, you know. Um, so it defies any cultural norm. And then he has this lifestyle that makes even the most dedicated monk seem as though he's a man of the world, just eating locust and wild honey. But what are his credentials? In this town... It's, it's like a green card. If you don't have a master's degree, good luck finding a job, right? So, you're like, what's your MDiv or your MD or what's your master's degree and what's, what's your credentials? Well, we look to John. What are his credentials? The prophecies of Isaiah. Those are his credentials. That's why his ministry is so effective because, again, he's putting himself in the narrative of what God is doing, not what he wants to do. So what are his, his, his credentials? It was Matthew Wrightson. For, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, here, here's his credentials, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this is from Isaiah. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah don't, pick a, don't paint a really good picture. It's more or less doom and gloom. God is going to judge... His people, and He's going to judge the nations for their rebellion against Him. So, chapters 1 through 39, primarily judgment. You have these flickers of, of hope and, and of, of glory coming through. So, you see in Isaiah 6, you see um, <clears throat> Isaiah coming into the throne room of God, receives the seraphs crying out, This holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty. 
So you see this in these first couple of chapters. And you also see these songs of praise where God is going to judge uh, like the Babylonians or someone like that or the Assyrians or the Arameans. And so then you have the song of praise of, of God's people crying out, praise God who's delivering us from this redemption, from this oppression, from these other nations. And then you also have in, these, in chapter 9, you have these, this flicker of hope for the coming Messiah. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon His shoulders, and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So you have these flickers of hope throughout the first 39 chapters. But by and large, the the narrative is God is going to judge His people. If you are apart from faith in Christ, looking forward to Christ at that time, the true Messiah who is to come. If you are not in that, you are going to be in under judgment. Flickers of hope, though. But then, at the end of this section, you have it, it gets even worse. So you have Hezekiah, who is the king of, of Judah, and they're promised they're going to go into exile. So you have in, the Assyrians come and take off this ten northern tribes in 701. You have the northern tribes all carried off. And then they turn their, their fleet to the southern kingdom as well. And they're surrounding them. And Sennacherib has them, as it says, as a bird in the cage. And they're surrounded. And that's when God delivers them. 185,000 Assyrians wiped out. Hezekiah, he gets prideful. And this Babylonian envoy comes and he shows them the riches of what he thinks is his kingdom. And he shows them the riches. And he, this Babylonian envoy, they come and they see it and then they go off. And then Hezekiah has this word from Isaiah, from God, in chapter 39. Hear the word of the Lord, of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that is your fathers have stored up up until this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons, they will be taken from you, whom you will father. They shall be taken from you, and there will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So all hope is lost. Everything you have, everything your forefathers have saved up and given you, every inheritance you have is going to be carried off into Babylon. And this, this is fulfilled. So the Babylonians, they come. And then these, you have this promise of redemption. This promise of redemption to come. And what do you think are in the beginning of movements? What do you think are the verses starting chapter 40 that goes through 66? It gives God's people hope of the true kingdom that is to come. It's these verses right here. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. So you have physical, Israel, physical uh, exile, and they're delivered from that. King Cyrus comes and he delivers them from that. But if that's the true exile, why there's there John the Baptist? Because we begin to see that this exile is pointing a picture of something greater. It's pointing a picture of our spiritual exile. That that is our identity. That we are all in exile, spiritual exile, if we are apart from Christ. 
So that's why we have John the Baptist fulfilling this. He's pointing to someone who is greater than him, whose sandals he is not worthy to carry. So we see that this true redemption from exile is in Christ. It is in Christ and in Christ alone. For Christ is one. He is the one who will bring them to the promised land. So this is why you care about it. This, this physical Israel, of, this physical exile of God's people 2,500 years ago. You see in that your own story that you were in spiritual exile and here is John the Baptist crying out, prepare the way of the Lord for this true King is going to come and He is the one who will deliver you from your spiritual exile. That's in Christ. So what do you do? Right? Realize the, the kingdom that's being proclaimed here. This is not a merely an earthly kingdom. John the Baptist is a herald. It's common for heralds, for kingdoms to have their heralds. But this is not a, a merely earthly kingdom. What is he calling it? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, this is not a call to defend yourself. This is not this call to arms or anything like that. No, no, no. That's what you do if it's an earthly kingdom. This is the kingdom of heaven. So what do you do, my friends? You repent. You repent. John's, John's story and his command... For them, along, along the Jordan, is the same thing that we need to do here in Rochester. It's the same story because we're in the same exile. Same spiritual exile. We need to repent. Why? Because there is the coming King who will usher in the Kingdom of Heaven. And so you notice two reactions here as well. When you hear that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there are those who humble themselves and those who, who justify themselves. Those who believe and those who continue in their rebellion. Those who, who are made alive together with Christ and those who are dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked. So you see this, these different reactions. And this is, this is made really clear in John 11 where you have Jesus raising Lazarus. Lazarus is your friend, is in the tomb for four days. You have Christ crying out, Lazarus, come out. And amazingly, a man who had been dead, believe this or not, a man who was dead had been brought to life. And in this, you have two separate reactions. One, you see in John eleven forty five, you have belief. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, they believed in him. So you have the gospel coming forth. You have John the Baptist coming forth and saying, repent. You have two reactions. One, as we see with Lazarus, they believe. What's the other reaction? Continued rebellion against God. So you have these religious elites, as we see in John 11. Even when they see Lazarus raised from the dead, what do they do? They hate God all the more. Why? Because it wasn't them who did it. It was God. So they continue in their rebellion against Him. Why? Because they want to justify themselves. Do you think they want to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God? No. No, they do not. 
John writes this in John 11. He says, so, John writes, from that day on, they, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, planned together to kill him. That's their reaction. So we, coming back to our text here, we see that John the Baptist is calling them out of their spiritual exile. So he's, he's calling out the Jewish people and they know, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. They know what's going on. And they begin to see, oh, wait, we've been in the land physically, but we're not really free. We were under the Greeks, now we're under the Romans. Oh, wait. True redemption is coming. True redemption is coming. Here's the herald. What must I do? I must repent. So you, you see this. The common people, what are they doing? They're coming to him. Jerusalem, all Judea, and all of the region about the Jordan. The common people are coming to John, being baptized by him in the Jordan, and confessing their sins. But now we're going to see the, re, the response and the unbelief of the religious elite. So let us go back to the text. Uh, verses 10, or verses 7, all the way down to 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So here you have the other side of the coin. And it was only a matter of time until the religious elites, right? It was only a matter of time until they heard about this fanatical man who's wearing very odd things, telling them people to do very odd things, repent, and now he's dunking them, baptizing them in the River Jordan. So it's, you, you know, it's only a matter of time, right? So they hear about this, and they want to go see why are they coming to Jerusalem? Why are they going to the Jordan? Obviously, they're going to look at it. And you have beginning to see, as I mentioned, this, this beginning, these cracks to begin to emerge in the temple system, right? So John is calling them to repent. But he's not telling them to then go to the temple. Because the temple, as we understand it, it was just a temporal thing. It was to point to Christ. And who's in their midst? Adam's going to preach on it the next, next week. Who's in their midst? The true temple. So that's why he's not telling them to go to the temple, but he's beginning, that system is beginning to crumble and to crack down to point all the much more clearly to Christ, the true temple, where the true sacrifice of God is made. So you have these, these, these Pharisees and these, these Sadducees on, on the scene, and they're actually mute actors. They don't say a word. But John knows what they're thinking, and he speaks for them quite clearly. And before they can say a word, he says, you brood of vipers. Now think, Genesis 3. Who's the viper? Who's the serpent? Satan. So he's calling them, not you, you a lot of reptiles. No, no, no. He's calling them, you spawn of Satan. You've, you have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He's calling them, you guys are the seed of the serpent. So in that time, you have, as we mentioned, the commoners, probably 80, 85% of the population. 
And then you have uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and the Essenes. And the Pharisees, these are the guys who were kind of in charge of the, the temple. They set the, the, the tone for the religious, the religious tone for a lot of the commoners. They looked to the Pharisees to see what they should do in terms of religion. Then you have the Sadducees. They're the ones who are in political cahoots with, which was once the Greeks, but now the Romans. So they're the ones in, tur- in charge of the Sanhedrin. So when Christ needs to be executed, they go to the Sanhedrin. They need political clout to do it. It's the Sanhedrin and uh, the Sadducees that make that happen. Then you also have the Zealots, Simon the Zealot. These are the ones who are drawing up arms and wanting to physically bring in the kingdom. Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots. And then finally you have the Essenes who said, uh, enough of you guys, I am leaving. And they go off into the wilderness. And there were several thousand of them in there and they lived in Qumran. And perhaps you've read some of their writings, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's where we get these from, is from these Essenes who said, enough of you guys, we're going to live. So you have John the Baptist calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you brood of vipers. You cannot underestimate the stance that he is taking right there. He is calling every political and religious authority that's in that land the seed of Satan. That's astounding. And so he knows what they're, how they're going to justify him, though. So how do they respond? The religious elites, how do they respond in, in terms of this call to repent? Do they repent? No, there's no sign of it whatsoever. And John knows their hearts, and he says, you say that, you, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham on our side. Right? So they, they claim that they have Abraham. But they don't. What did Abraham have? Abraham had faith. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness, as we see in Romans 4. So, they say that they have Abraham, but they don't. Because Abraham was pointing to Christ. So, if they truly had Abraham, they too would have been longing for this coming Messiah, who was in their midst at that time. He's going to be baptized moments later, as we'll see next week. So they're pointing, they're they're justifying themselves in who they are. So you begin to ask yourself, which one am I? You see the common people, they're told to repent. And they, they come, they're seeking this out. And they're being baptized by John in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But then you also have those who justify themselves. Which one are you? Right? If you think about your relationship to God, when you're told to repent, what's your response? Hopefully it's not of what, right? (laughs) I hope that's not the response. So what does this mean? Over, over the next week, um, first, uh, Adam and I talk about this quite often. Uh, we are, I just want to encourage you guys. We're blown away at how easy it is to be transparent and to be vulnerable in and amongst you guys. 
There is no need um, to have these calloused layers of religiosity over your hearts. There's, there's an ability to be open and transparent and just to say, I'm a sinner. I'm a wretched man that I am. All the much more to point to Christ and His grace and His glory. I, I'm, I'm astounded that right now, by, God, by God's grace, we pray that it continues. That there are, there's no need to be this 21st century Pharisee or Sadducee in and amongst this broken group of people who cry out to and to worship their coming Messiah. So I want to encourage you with that. However, um, in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you see the natural man. The natural man that is in all of us and longing to, to come out. And so we see this. And how, how often do we do it? Do we try to justify, try to justify our actions, right? So you think, I was convicted about this quite deeply this week. You think about broken relationships in your life and you try and it's so easy to say, I've done the right thing. I've done all that I can do. My works are sufficient in this broken relationship with whatever man or woman. And you begin to see the natural man coming out. And you're reducing this relationship to a works-based relationship. Same thing Pharisees had. Works-based relationship. And they liked it that way because they could name the works for things that they could do. So you have this workspace relationship with another man or another woman and you have a broken relationship because it's work-based. And I think that in these dark corners you begin to see the fruit of how you perhaps see your relationship with God. So how much more are you going to relate to God coming back to the natural man even if you're in Christ? How easy is it? To come back to the natural man. And you begin to see how you want to justify yourself before God. And, and converse this to the one who is repenting and repenting and repenting, knowing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So then you have a broken relationship here, but you realize, I've drank of this mercy and this glory of God. How much merciful should I be to those around me? In these broken relationships. Though I'm offended, Christ, He's the one that's truly offended. Though I'm scorned, praise be to God, I'm like Christ all the much more. So in these broken relationships, don't be a Pharisee, don't be a Sadducee. Drink of the grace of God and have that displayed in your relationships with others as well. And I pray that that naturally happens for those who are repenting and repenting and repenting, knowing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So friends, just to recap, we have this spiritual exile and this prophecy from Isaiah that is John the Baptist, it's his credentials. And we begin to see that it's not physical Israel, or it's not this physical exile for Israel that was such a problem, but it's spiritual exile, which is true for all of us. And so, the one who is going to bring us out of this exile and into the true promised land is Christ. The one for whom John the Baptist is, is heralding. 
So you have this redemption from spiritual exile. And and then you see the response. You see the response of the common people. And I pray that that's us. Where they're coming, they're confessing their sins. They are heeding the Word of God. They are heeding the Word of God to repent. And then we contrast that to the the religious elites. And they're saying, we, we, have, we have Abraham. We have Abraham. But what do they have? They have nothing. They don't even have Abraham. All they have is their, their works, their pride, and their vanity. And they're going to stand before God and justify themselves with pride and vanity. The one who is giving them very breath, the one who is giving them the strength to do those works, they're going to use those to then justify themselves before God. It's pure folly. But in that must be warned, because that is us. Even if you're in Christ, that's our natural tendency to let this natural man come up and manifest itself. So finally, we're going to see these two reactions. We've seen it. The common people and those who repent and those who carry on in their pride. Now we're going to see why those reactions are important, very important throughout the rest of eternity. So we have the gathering and the burning of the harvest. Let's wrap it up with verses 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with fire, with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here you have it. Christ is the one to come. At the Judean wilderness, along the Jordan, Christ is the one who was to come. Here we are. Centuries, centuries later. Christ is the one to come. It's the same story. It's the same narrative. And you have this harvest when the wheat and the chaff, they're brought in together. But Christ has the winnowing fork in His hand, which is like a pitchfork, basically. And they would grab the wheat and they'd throw it up in the air and try to separate it, separate the wheat from the chaff and get the wheat off the stalk and it would fall to the ground and they would have oxen walking around with kids, basically on sleds to kind of break it up a little bit. But then you have this separation between the wheat, and the chaff. The separation between those who heeded the the call to repent and came to John and were baptized and those, the Pharisees and Sadducees, perhaps you, who carry on in your pride to seek to justify yourself. But then you have this wheat, this, this prized possession of Christ. And notice the affection with which he, he says, it's not just the wheat, it's his wheat. It's his wheat. You see, the chaff. But you see his wheat. In his wheat, they're brought in to the barn, a place of safety and protection. But the chaff, those who do not repent, what is the picture that we see there? He will burn them with unquenchable fire. So it's not as though just they will be burned. No, no, no. He will burn them with unquenchable fire. And so you have two different reactions to the same event, the same coming of Messiah. So 
as Christians, as we who are in Christ, we long for the Messiah to once again come. Go through some hardships in life, and there is nothing sweeter than realizing the Messiah is going to come. You see it. John, at the end of Revelation, Jesus says, Yes, I am come quickly, and the John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. There's nothing else to say. God, come back. So you have these two different reactions. You have one, you have the people of Christ, those who have repented. I hope you are. Not that you have, but I hope you are repenting. Those who are in Christ, they long for the coming of Messiah. But those who are not in Christ, this same event produces something that is drastically, drastically different. It's the day of dread, where they will be burned with unquenchable fire. So friends, we we see that there's this call for John the Baptist to go repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the same message that we have to hear and that we have to heed today. Why? Because Christ could only be but a moment away. Little did they know Christ was in their midst and He was going to show up on the scene and be baptized by John. Perhaps He's just a moment away, friends. So we heed the warning of John the Baptist to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see this call of God's people out of spiritual exile. We see the the response of, of the common people, those who are lowly and not esteemed. They come in their brokenness and their repentance, and I pray that's you. But then you see the response of the religious elites, those who are prideful, probably pastors, which is humbling. You see, their response is that of pride. But the outcome could not be any more different. When Christ comes, He will gather His wheat into His barn, and they will behold His glory forever. But those who are apart from Christ will take part in this fire that is unquenchable. Friends, I pray that you would heed this. Heed this response. Do not let your hearts be cold. But that you would repent, knowing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that You would come. God, that You might come now. Even this day, this very moment that You would come and gather us to drink of Your beauty, of Your grace, that we might see You face to face, to behold Your goodness, God. And to worship the Lamb who was slain. God, could You come back now? But if You don't, could You keep us? Could You hold us fast? How often we think that we are so righteous, and we are the one holding on to You. God, would we see our childlike dependence upon You, realizing that it is You who have us. It is You who have worked out all of this unto You and Your glory. 
that your people who were created to worship you might worship you in spirit and in truth. God, I pray that if you do not come, that you would hold us and hold us fast. Amen.